Before we begin, I would like to emphasize that this podcast is separate from my teachings and work at Del Seton Medical Center. Any discussions we have on this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and in no way connected to Del Seton Medical Center. Because we're going to take that leg that you're going to lose and we're going to turn it into life in many ways, right? We're going to take that leg. The seven Tesla and understanding the device wall interactions and so, so on and so forth. That is for us to innovate better devices. The way that we understand the devices that we have are really designed for the heart. We have no idea how it actually performs in the legs. And by understanding those interactions better, yes, we can use that information for patient selection and so on and so forth. But I think ultimately the goal is to be innovating better devices. Two vascular surgeons walk into a bar and come out with a podcast. We are talking everything vascular and not. Welcome to the Life of Flow podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of Life of Flow. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Lucas Ferrer, and your server, Miguel Montero Baker. And today we had a great program that I'm excited to share with you guys. We actually invited Dr. Trisha Roy, both vascular surgeon and scientist, who has lived her life really kind of divesting into the advantages of imaging, of high-definition imaging with MRI and the relationship of MRI and plaque and how in this day of age, we should try to understand how devices work in the best way for different lesions and morphology based on a GPS given by pretty advanced imaging. So I enjoyed it and I hope that you do today. Want to get it? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, everybody. Welcome to Life of Flow. This is our episodio numero tres. Today, I'm, uh, I am I guess we're like gravitating to what, what this show is all about because we started without any idea. But we're, we're kind of figuring <laughs> out like that, that the way this works is you have two guys. We're really good friends. We're both vascular surgeons. And we always have like these intense discussions about things in life that could be vascular or non-vascular, financial, religion, artworks, whatever. But then we always bring these these people. Oh, I I met this person, and oh, I know this person, and oh, you 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 would love meeting this person. Well, this is why we made this podcast. I have uh, found along my journey some people that I thought Lucas would enjoy, and obviously our audience. And the same way Lucas has met other people that he thinks the audience would love meeting, and so we're just bringing them to the table. And so today, I'm incredibly you know honored to say that I am bringing, it's my turn. So uh, I bring one of my good friends and colleagues, Trisha Roy, who is uh, not only a really incredible physician, but also one of the nicest, kindest persons that I've ever met in my life. And so we've developed this really beautiful relationship of, of collaborative and intellectual interaction at work. And so, Lucas, I thought that you would be great to bring to the table because I think in many ways that you're going to love the fact that I think she's about to just bring down an entire enterprise of medicine. And and, <laughs> and I love chaos. I see, I see her uh, laughing there in the background. Uh, but no, let's let's back up and I'll, I'll that's the, you know, like we'll start that, but we'll get to that. And uh 
Dr. Trisha Roy, scientist and vascular surgeon. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. And if you don't mind, maybe we'll start with this, Lucas. I'll let her introduce herself. Trish, tell us a little bit of, of your story, very kind of high level, where you came from, where you're at now, what are your research perks and kind of where, where you're going with this. And then we'll dive into a little bit of, of, of what this is all about and, and, and how important is this for those of us in the current state of the management of peripheral arterial disease. All right. Well, you know, I came to vascular surgery from a very different route. So I'm from Toronto, Canada. Miguel always makes fun of my accent. So that's why I have that. What are you talking about? I never do that. I never do that. Okay. Um, But I started, you know, my training as an engineer. So I'm a materials engineer as my background. And then I did medical school, went into vascular surgery, really because I liked the devices and the opportunity in that realm. And at University of Toronto, there's a surgeon scientist training program. So you can do your clinical training and you step out for a PhD. So I did that in vascular MRI, really focusing on peripheral vascular disease and how we can characterize that better. And then you finish your training. And so after I finished training, I came here to Houston uh, Methodist where Dr. Lumsden, he recruited me down to start a lab here. And so I'm 50-50 now. So I do 50% clinical work and really trying to target my practice to peripheral vascular disease patients. I have a wound care clinic, really looking at limb salvage. And those patients are meant to feed my research lab, which is really focused on the same patient population, but looking at how do we develop better imaging techniques, a lot of it's with MRI, to personalize how we're treating these patients and really selecting the right treatment for the individual patient because we're learning more and more how different each one is. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. For those of you out there that are not necessarily super well-versed on imaging, and, and I'm not proclaiming myself as one, I've learned everything from her. Magnetic resonance imaging or MRI uses a fairly complex pattern that has to do with magnetic fields and the way that some of those energies respond and some of the way that the electrons are spinning and so on and so forth. But uh, Lucas, let me put you in a, in a very odd position, but do you remember Tesla, which Tesla is the way that you determine how, how strong those magnetic fields are. Do you know what the Tesla of your regular MRIs are? It's like like three, three, Tesla. three, right? Yeah. About three Tesla. Okay. Dr. Roy is probably one of the only physicians in America that has a seven Tesla. Okay. So Trisha, seven Tesla, it's almost more than double what Dr. Lucas Ferrer here has ever seen or has ever heard in his practice. What can you see? With a seven Tesla MRI, tell can, them a little. Can tell you like us, yeah, bring yeah. down an airplane with a seven Tesla MRI? Can, can you, you like what? pull it from the sky? <laughs> you, you, it will pull your teeth. Like yeah. if you have implants, it'll just you suck them suck, back. Yeah, probably. <laughs> you <laughs> do feel that, a little bit. Tell of the problem. audience. Yeah, tell the yeah. audience. What does a seven Tesla mean in comparison to what we're all used to seeing these three Tesla MRIs? What is a seven Tesla MRI? And how detailed can that information be? So in general, when you're talking about the three Tesla MRIs that we're doing, we're talking about one millimeter isotropic resolution, okay? When we're looking at below the knee disease, you know, those vessels are 
two millimeters in size. And so your ability to differentiate what those blockages are going to be made out of is going to be limited. Uh, we know that for CT scans as well, even if the, I apologize, even if the resolution is better, but you have the calcium blooming. And so below the knee imaging has been just a challenge. With seven Tesla MRI, you know, it's really been developed for looking at the small vessels in the brain, but we're using it in the leg and you can see such fine detail. So now we're talking about 200 micron isotropic resolution. So similar to intravascular imaging as an example. And so with that, you're able to differentiate different types of plaque thrombus from fibrous plaque with dense collagen or calcium. You can see nerve bundles. You can see the chronicity of clot. We can see so much more information and we're only learning more and more now how to best use that. So I think that it's been really interesting being able to, you know, have this program here where we can really explore that more. But you're, are you just using that for research or it's just for research. So the nice thing about the program that we have is we have the translational aspect, which is more of a bench type research where we're imaging patients and their legs at high resolution on a seven Tesla MRI, get really nitty gritty idea of what the plaque composition is or, you know, that information so that when we do device testing, we can do harvesting of those blood vessels, get histology and really understand at a vessel wall level what we're doing. In parallel, we have the 3T MRI. And so with the sequences that we have, um, which are actually widely available, you can still see a lot of really important information. We've been looking at even, you know, how we can use that for deep venous arterialization planning. We have the 3T MRI patient study that's going, and we have the 7 Tesla for the more mechanistic studies. What is your ability with this sort of imaging that's almost like I would say like it only reminds you a little bit of of my cross you know microscopy histology right when it's like so well defined like you're looking at the microns what is your current lab doing with cadaver specimens then like right because you're saying I can tell you the composition to the T of every single one of these obstructions okay great but what are you doing with that information and how are we supposed to eventually translate it into some clinical application? So walk me through the way that you're using these advanced imaging modalities in tibial disease. And by the way, for an audience that may not be necessarily super well-versed on this, it's incredibly important that we know more about the disease state from the knee down, because that is usually what diabetics and patients with kidney problems have the the vascular disease is is primarily of the knees down is if of the tibial vessels and from the ankle down and so understanding you know having people like dr roy trying to push the needle and understanding how we deal with this is incredibly important because the numbers are just going exponentially in the in the wrong direction sadly so but we need to be smarter about this right we can't just treat everybody with the same you know, tool. So Trish, what are you doing right now? Run me by one of your most important kind of like projects right now as to 
what you do with that specimen and what does the MRI 7 tell you and what are you aiming to prove through this sort of studies? Okay. So just kind of backing up for just a second to answer that, I kind of liken it to an analogy. If you are going to go and drill a hole in a wall, okay, you don't know whether it's made out of wood, concrete, plaster, glass, have no idea. You go to your toolkit and you kind of just use your drill bits that you have on hand one at a time. So meaning there's drill bits for cement, there's drill bits for wall, like drywall, right? It's different. It's all different. And if you don't choose the right one, you can do a lot of damage to your wall, right? Now we're talking about something as delicate as a patient's blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And each of these devices are designed for specific types of plaque. We're talking about devices that care for, that remove plaque, right? It's devices we uh, now call them atherectomy devices, right? So these are devices that in a way you, you use, their objective is to remove plaque from the wall so that they can open the obstruction and essentially allow blood flow down the leg. Your analogy here is like there's drill bits for different parts. Essentially, we're at a point in time where these devices maybe should be more personalized. Is that where you, you're getting to? Exactly. And right now for our imaging, we can see the patent parts of the vessel and where it reconstitutes, but the blockage itself is invisible. You don't know what it's really made out of. So the idea with what we're doing is we're imaging these very diseased legs, very reflective of the patients that we're treating every day, and then using the device that's supposed to be intended for it, comparing it with the standard of care. So standard of care right now is still balloon angioplasty, We know that that doesn't work well, right? 70% will re-stenose in a year. And we think it's because of the vessel wall damage we're doing in the process with these very high, high pressure inflations in these blood vessels. So how do we make it better? Well, we think that we can make it better if we choose the right device for the right patient to open the vessel, but minimize your vessel wall injury. So we image it without ever disrupting the plaque at all with this seven Tesla MRI. And that's really unique that we have that. We do the procedure in the leg, just as you would in our patients, you know, that we do every day. And then we actually harvest those blood vessels and look at it under a microscope. So we know exactly what we did to the vessel wall. For absolute clarity, these are people that are already been deemed for an amputation, sadly, that Everything that we could offer as a clinicians has been offered. And the only resolution is they're going to lose their extremities. And so your team goes in and talks to these people and it could be in the middle of the night and tell them, we understand what you're going through. It is, you know, it's an incredibly sad thing for you, for your family, for your network. But would you provide us with, with your leg? Because we're going to take that leg that you're going to lose. And we're going to turn it into life in many ways, right? We're going to take that leg and we're going to image it and we're going to understand why we lost the battle. And it may provide not answers for you, sadly, but it will provide answers for a lot of other people in the future. And so these are legs that have been already amputated. 
to be, a, you know, because I feel that that has to, there's a great respect for people to give themselves to science, right? Yeah. And I think like, it's almost, it's something that our patients are just so generous and they want to help science. They want to understand why this happens, why it didn't work for them, but it worked for somebody else. You know, they want answers and they want to participate in that. And so obviously, you know, the amputation is usually at the long, long, long end, end of a long road, but this gives a little bit of a feeling that they're they're giving back in a way. And so they actually are really, um, really motivated to participate in the study. So let's dive in. So you're seeing really down to the effects of what we're doing. And you understand it in a profound way. So show me like what they say. Don't show me what you think. Show me your portfolio. If you, what, first of all, what do you think of best CLI? It's like, okay, what do you do with a complex lesion? So you have your methods, you have all the tools available to you. You have, you cross a lesion, you're intraluminal, you're in, say, let's say TP trunk, ostium of the, the PT, and you have a heel ulcer and you, you have a 014 wire across it. What do you do? Sorry, you're saying in the context of BCLI, like no, in the, well, in the context of your knowledge. The short answer is we don't actually know, and that's why I'm doing the research that we're doing. Um, do you think the composition really matters? So today, you know, doc, uh, you know, Dr. Montero was talking about the case that I was doing. This is an instant occlusion. We know that this is thrombus. Okay, in that circumstance, we're going to do, in this in case, we did like a rotational atherectomy, uh, rotorex uh, atherectomy, and then aspiration and so on and so forth. But if that's rock-hard, dense collagen, what have we found that's worked for that? It's been actually our ablation wires. That's been something that can actually ablate through dense collagen. If that's a rock of RFA, calcium, RFA wires. you know, then you're going to be looking at some of the more, you know, the the other types of atherectomy devices. But ultimately, none of them have shown benefit because they're mixing up all, all these different lesion types and using it the same and then say having conflicting results. So I really think, and that's kind of the hypothesis that we're going on is these devices were designed for specific types of lesions, but we can't tell the lesions apart. If we can do that and choose the right device, then I think our outcomes are going to really improve. Is IVUS useful at all? IVUS is useful in the context of sizing, I think, um, of knowing whether you're subintimal or not. but. My advice is that I think you should be able to have that information before you start your case. You know, Ivis, you're already there. You're already across the lesion. The big failure points of a, of a procedure is often not being able to cross. You've already kind of like, you're, you know, you're already like halfway down your case by the time you can get an Ivis down. So I think that that's the beauty of cross-sectional imaging is you can really plan your cases, know what a plaque is and in three dimensions, look at occlusions specifically that you can't look at with IVIS. I think that it has a role, but I don't think it's the, 
I think that non-invasive imaging and procedure planning and device selection should happen before you put a needle poke in a in, in the groin at all. Yeah. So, giving that context, so giving you have mixed pl- plaque, you have imperfect devices, you have imperfect decision making, you have a multi-level lesion, a significant wound, and you have a good vein. Off the bat, do you go endo or do you just do a bypass? I think for right now with that context, that if the patient is surgically fit, you know, then uh, bypass would be preferable for a really long segment occlusion, provided that you have good conduit. But it's interesting because there was a patient that I had who was, you know, a lot of our patients are very ill. They have bad cardiac disease. They're not surgically fit. And I did a CT scan of her leg and her whole SFA looked occluded, but it wasn't calcified. Okay. So on CT scan, not really, you know, it looked like it would be something soft. I can cross that. No problem. You go in and it's rock, rock, rock hard. So somebody like that, I don't think I would have attempted a big, long endo procedure if I knew that the whole thing was rock hard collagen. And that's the kind of thing that I think the MR can help us with dividing. Because if you look at all the editorials or anything kind of coming back to the best CLI, you know, it's, it's like all about patient selection. Well, how do you select the right patients, right? And I think it does come down to what is the lesion that you're trying to treat? You know, let, let, let me set the stage with, and, and by all means, we're, we're not trying to move this conversation through this oh my God, we hate atherectomy. Oh my God, we, we we love atherectomy. It's what do we do that's useful? And that's where I think what, what Dr. Roy here is, is done phenomenally well, which is there are certain patients that are going to respond so much better to this one device in the first proximal third and then we'll respond much better to this device in the distal third. Like it could get so much overly complex, right? If you're now telling me that I can have microns of detail into my decision making, how much more informed are you going to be? And how it, you know, it doesn't mean that we're trying to disprove atherectomy in any way, shape, or form. Maybe you need two atherectomy devices per procedure. And then maybe for another patient, you don't need any atherectomy devices at all. Now, would I find as a threat to your hypothesis, Trisha, is that it's so myopic in the sense that it's seven Tesla. It's going literally to what the molecules in the cable that's conducting this microphone is. And it possibly loses sight of the fact that that patient is Medicaid, of the fact that that patient has no family members that can bring him back to a wound care appointment. And so we're talking about this stratospheric detail in the way that we care for patients. But don't you think that in a way, it's so important that we also lay that on what the actual context of the patient is. Are they going to be able to come to 
So are they systems gonna have- of systems. We're getting to the point where we have to manage systems of systems. Well, my question yeah. to you, Trisha, is do you not care about that? You know, as a scientist, do you say, hey, my role is to prove this device or to prove this technique and to give scientists, but at the end of the day, I'm, you know, I'm just throwing a grain of salt here, but it doesn't, you know, how do you contextually frame your work in the reality that as a scientist and as a surgeon, half of your day, you're dealing with telling me, Miguel, I can't send this patient to you because she doesn't have insurance approved by your office. And then you and I are like somehow, right? Like like we're dealing with this. So I'm sorry, but it's like, hey, we're talking seven Teslas. And then we're like, is she Medicare? Medicaid? Can she see me? Like, can she get a wound dressing? Like, how important is that in the setting of, of the reality? So how transformational? Like, what do we need to do? Because I think that what you're doing is phenomenally important, but like, how do we translate that into actual care for the people that we see? I mean, it's super important because like, if there is a type of intervention that has no benefit whatsoever, or it's like, so, or in the majority of patients. So you're going to have mixed morphology plaque, but the majority of patients come in, you know, a flavor of this mix and that device doesn't work for the majority of patients. I wouldn't know that because I don't want to use that device and charge that patient for that device that is not going to help. How do you translate so personalized medicine into populational-based care? I guess that's the question. Yeah, I have to separate these things because the seven Tesla and understanding the device wall interactions and so, so on and so forth, that is for us to innovate better devices. The way that we understand the devices that we have are really designed for the heart. We have no idea how it actually performs in the legs. And by understanding those interactions better, yes, we can use that information for patient selection and so on and so forth. But I think ultimately the goal is to be innovating better devices. But in terms of stepping back, in terms of how do we use this information for patients, I think that, you know, so I have a wound care clinic, so I'm seeing these patients again and again, and I can actually follow them. And MRI has become part of our workflow, not just mine, but everyone's, because you get your angiography, really beautiful angiography. You get your osteomyelitis scan. So now we're doing more and more of those just for any of the foot wounds. And you can get functional information as well. And I think that if we're able to use one study to tell us so many different parts, that is going to be more economical in the long term than a bunch of failed angios, which has the same, you know, all the procedure costs and so on and so forth with with that. X-ray angiography is extremely expensive. And, you know, we just have to keep that in context as well. So we are implementing that into our workflow, but certainly we have to show the benefit of that for that to be more widespread. But, you know, if I could use something simpler, I would, you know, but the power of it is just, it's very hard to to compare. You both have been involved directly and indirectly into this one clinical scenario that I've been dealing with, very complex, with this gentleman that had popliteal aneurysms. and trashed every single one of his tibial outflow vessels. And for the last five years, I kid you not, he's gone in for multiple balloon angioplasties by 
vascular surgeons, by interventional cardiologists, by even CT surgeons. Like every single person missed the issue, missed the problem. They were, no, 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 let me tell you, they were doing balloon angioplasty of the tibials that were occluded by a trash clot. Nobody cared for the popliteal aneurysm at one, ever. But what, what I'm trying to say with that is like, what if I could tell you that this patient gets one single scan, shows this is acute or chronic clot. There is absolutely no, no cholesterol. The plaque morphology is absolutely, there's nothing on the wall. This is an embolic disease. You would not be able to provide plain balloon angioplasty as a standard of care for somebody that has occluded tibials by clot. Well, who's, who's the referee? I think what is this? I think the, the MRI is a referee. Yeah, but the the person, no, I mean, who's, who's overseeing what, what's in the, I think the super interesting thing, which would be kind of in the ideal world, is that your research drives the incentives. Because if you are doing research that demonstrates a 5% benefit, does that merit the incentives that come with certain interventions? And, you know, that that's kind of the, the dream, which is, okay, you figure out this study that a lot of what we're doing is not working. Should that be incentivized? And again, back to back to the kind of hot topic question of, and this is something I've been thinking based on the New York Times article that recently came out. The problem is not who who's doing the procedure. That's not the problem. The problem is what is the incentive? And it's the, multi, it's the multiplayer trap. So if you have a bunch of people that are competing for the same market and they, you know, in this case, they're incentivized to do more procedures, then they'll do more procedures. But in the in the context of research like yours, if the incentives can be modified based on data, then then we can really put a control it in a certain way based on the incentives. Um, I don't know if that makes much sense, but I don't know. Let me ask you something. So some of these devices have five ten k approvals. FDA has approved them. They they are safe. <laughs> Why are you laughing when I say five ten k? They are safe. They are uh, they are against gold standard. They are they have shown to have uh, you know very minimal impacts, and there is codes to incentive their uh, utilization because they take more time. It's more work RVUs for the physician. Question to you, like you know, should we hold devices at this point? to a different standard? And should we potentially tie the reimbursement to such devices to different standards than what we're doing right now? To patency rate and wound healing, yes. I don't even know if it's patency rate. Maybe it's, you know, wound healing, uh, improvement from pain control, uh, granulation, like, I'm not sure if it's patency is a cardio, a cardiological input. Well, because let's let Trisha share. I know, yeah. but I'm just saying patency is a cardiological input. Like yeah. coronaries, you don't see anything, but we see feet. Yeah. So patency alone cannot be separated What's the from the impact in the wound healing rate that it produces. So anyway, Dr. Roy. So the reason why I'm laughing about the 510K is because the standard of evidence that you have to provide for that is very low. And it's just saying that it's not different from what we've done before. And it's similar enough that we can use that. And so that's why the New York Times articles are saying, hey, like these devices, like we don't even know whether they work. And then there's this 
you know, article that says that they're causing higher amputations and blah, 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 you know, all of that. And I think that actually understanding how the devices work in blood vessels that we treat is important. And I think that that is how we should be incentivizing. And there are companies who actually want to understand who should their patients be? When do you use their device and how do you make their device better? And those are the companies that we want to support because they're, they're really innovating with our patients in mind versus companies that are like, I have this tool. Can I use it all over the body? And can I make it sound similar enough to what we've already done so that I can get it through FDA with minimal hassle? We've done that. We've been there and we're not doing well with that approach. And I think that that's kind of what I'm really interested in is having more robust device testing and incentivizing that for sure, because I think that that will result in better outcomes. The problem with just using only clinical outcomes is, like you said, it's based on so many different things, whether your wound heals you know, what footwear, what medications, what is your family doing? Well, you know, all of that stuff is going to contribute to it. The device impact is really the difference you're going to see is at the vessel wall level. So that's what we need to be able to differentiate to know whether a device is going to be effective for our patient in that circumstance. Is imaging enough to, because I did basic science research on like kind of vessel wall activation. And kind of the complexities of the intima, the you know, all at all. I didn't know that. There are many things you don't know. (laughs) Um, And it's so much about him. And it's very complex. Um, And I imagine that imaging isn't enough to understand the inflammatory process, which is basically what it comes. What I think, I don't know, from the little, little, little amount that I know that that it comes down to is, is. is there a good proxy with imaging to understand that kind of more cellular process? Like a more acute process, you mean? Kind of more like, you know, intimal activation or like new intimal hyperplasia like and phenotype changes in small muscles. Stuff. Yeah, all that stuff that I don't want to ever see again. Yeah, that's where that seven Tesla comes in. So it's not that I'm saying that everybody needs a seven Tesla, but to understand how the vessel wall is responding to the treatment we have, we can image patients at one week, one month, three months, and actually watch the vessel wall respond to it. And that's something nobody's been able to show before. And you can see, you know, smooth muscle proliferation. You can see differences in the vessel wall. Um, at that kind of resolution. And you can do it in a safe way that you can scan patients again and again for research purposes to answer you know, more of the mechanistic questions that we have. So I think that imaging is the way to look at those responses because if we're just relying on histology of healthy pigs to infer these things, it's, you know, it's completely Pointless. different. Yeah. Is there something that from your research that you've done that has changed your actual, like your day-to-day practice? She can say that. Yes, you can. No, she can say rotational or like photovoltaic or I don't know. Trisha, is there something that you've researched that you're like, I'm never going to use this thing when I care for patients? No, not this thing. That's what you're trying to say. You're putting it on the spot. Well, not a specific name, but like a a, a type of, there's mechanism. 
Is there a genre yeah. of devices that you're not amazed with currently with your device that you would be? F- what I actually appreciated more is inflation technique actually matters. No. So that's been interesting. Well, you, how, what do you do? Do you do two minutes, three minutes, uh, 20? This guy was so, you were so anal about the seconds per atmosphere. Because, okay, because please, of this, Trisha. And I appreciate it. I am very Point. anal about it also okay, now. Okay, listen, I, I, listen, listen, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> listen, talk, listen, Dr. Roy, yeah. the PhD, yeah. can you explain to this uh, bastard Caveman. about why yeah. it's important to go slow on your angioplasty? I go slow, dude. Go. Yeah. So that's the thing. Like, I didn't really think it was like that big of a deal before either. Right. So, you know, get your thing done and, and get out burst pressure or whatever, as long as it inflates to the, the, you know, as long as they see it pop. Okay. That's fine. And then now I've seen that the dissections and the plaque disruption is really significant if you don't allow the vessel wall to accommodate as you're inflating. And so it's been interesting with, with you, Miguel, because like a lot of the things that I think you've kind of surmised anecdotally is things that we're studying, but they are, you know, they are matching up with, uh, with a lot of the experience that you're, you're having. So when you see, when I saw the histology, I was a bit horrified because the angio looks beautiful because the, the lumen is huge, but you don't realize that you've completely disrupted the vessel wall in the process. So simple things have changed in my practice. I do do slow inflations. I do allow the vessel wall to accommodate. I do prolonged inflations, you know, things like that. No, I'm just saying she's answering how, your question. How, how slow? How slow do you uh, oh details? Let's go details. How slow do you go? It just for the, uh, I just wait until it accommodates, you know, so you inflate a couple of atmospheres, allow it to, to settle and then just go up to nominal from that. And do you go, do you go to burst pressure ever? If I, you know, I try before I would do that. wouldn't even think about it. Right. Like they tell me the numbers or whatever, who cares? No, now I'm, I'm conscious about that. So I'll do the minimum inflation pressure that I can to get the balloon to profile. And I try not to go above burst pressure. Do you oversize? Yes. Yeah. So we do oversize just by, you know, half a half a millimeter if you're using angio alone. If you're doing it based on IBIS, for example, it should be one-to-one. But that's another thing that we've seen is there's a big discrepancy between your angiographic diameter measurements and IBIS. And MRI is similar to IBIS in terms of how you're sizing. I hope that one day you'll you'll get this, Lucas, because uh, yeah, I, I have the pleasure of of working with Dr. Roy, and so we'll be in a case, and uh, you know maybe I'll open a balloon, and she's like, "Why'd you go up to six atmospheres?" And like <laughs> I'll be like, "I don't know." Like, how long are you gonna? And I'll be like, I don't know. I usually leave it at four or six and for a couple. And she's like, interesting. <laughs> and I'm like, what the, does that like go against all MRI data? That's just yeah. like, I feel like I'm always looked uh, through a microscope when I'm working with Dr. Roy. Uh, oh, no, but but it's, it's, it's good to hear you say that when, you know, some things that I've somehow say, I'm like, I don't know, this has worked for me a lot of times. And I've noticed that this She's like, oh, I actually can can prove what you now call experience-based medicine 
it's actually data driven medicine by some of the things that you've shown. It um, is David, because you, you did you didn't invent that. Somebody taught Well, somebody well, no, taught you that. Some, right? It's either I was told or and that person I've learned. learned it myself. And it was like, yeah. no, this is what's worked for me. I use this sort of atherectomy on this sort of the uh, lesion, this the hypercalcified area, you know. And, and it's it's funny because she'll be like, oh yeah, that's interesting. And then I'm like thinking on the way, I'm like driving home, like, oh my god, was she like really like interested or was she like judging me? But um, but no, you're so judgy, Trisha. I just want to say. That today's been amazing. I think that both Lucas and I have been. Uh, I want to keep talking though. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think that we would keep this on, but I know yeah. that you have both patients, uh, a, a phenomenal family, and a beautiful newborn that you have to get to. So we want to say uh, from all our production crew here in the in the in the room, thank you very much for your time, and we hope to meet you more and talk to you even more in other programs about more specific details. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, talk to more for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I, I really like the idea of this podcast and the fact that you're drawing light to a lot of these issues. And and yeah, it, it's been a ton of fun working with you too. So I hope this is just the beginning. Thank you very much, Trisha. Thank you.